given today's topic and timing, um, it felt fitting to acknowledge just how much I've been thinking about inheritance. I've been thinking about inheritance, so who better to kick things off than someone who's carried it the 11th hour many times before? So many times that even with the two extra inches on my boot heels, I'm still on my tippy toes trying to reach the bar she set. Um, Today's presenter, Anna Bruno, is the author of the novel Ordinary Hazards, released in 2020 by Atria Books. She teaches at the University of Iowa's Tippie College of Business and coaches professionals in creative business communication. Previously, Anna managed public relations and marketing for technology and financial service companies in Silicon Valley. She holds an MFA in fiction from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and an MBA from Cornell University and an MA, if I can turn the page here, I just need some little Jeopardy music, um, and a BA from Stanford University. She lives in Iowa City with her husband, two sons, and Blue Healer. For any project, Bruno writes, whether a short story or a novel, trope can be an entry point. Think a locked room mystery, dark academia, a midlife crisis. A cliche is a cliche then because it's worn thin by time. Thus, cliches aren't necessarily failures, but invitations to find new pathways within ourselves. Deeper truths, forgotten histories, habits, humor, biases, and so, so much more. I think about inheritance because as writers, each of us must navigate our words as if they were ephemera, funky fitting hand-me-downs and beloved family heirlooms. From the stories we're told as children to the very language through which those stories are told, our voices on and off the page aren't ours alone. But as Ralph Waldo Emerson reminds us, as the limestone of the continent consists of infinite masses of shells of animacules, lots of big words there, so language is made up of images or tropes, which now, in their secondary use, have long ceased to remind us of their origin. Naming is not an art, but a second human nature, grown out of the first, as a leaf out of a tree. Genius is the activity which repairs the decay of things, whether wholly or partially of a material and finite kind. So, speaking of genius and genius making, I believe it's time to turn things over to the brilliant Anna Bruno. Anna Bruno. So, a round of applause, please. Thank you. Thank you, Mason. That was w way too kind. Um, I'm very excited to be here with you today. Um, very excited to kick off this series with this topic because as I was preparing these remarks, I was thinking about what writers start with when we write fiction. And a lot of writers will say, oh, I started with a character or uh, a scene just popped into my head out of, out of the blue. And I think they're lying when they say that. I think the truth is we know what kind of fiction we want to write before we start. Right, we, we know we want to write a murder mystery or a campus novel, um, and maybe we have to write our way into that, but there's some vague idea that there are precedents, right? There are tropes we're working for. So it really is a starting point, and so I think it's appropriate that, that we're starting with it um, today. So, 
So it's a constraint because we're writing within um, some pre-existing category, uh, but it's also an opportunity. And so given that you're all writers, we're going to focus on that opportunity. What, what opportunity does trope, and then at the sentence level cliche, what opportunity does that present us with as writers? How do we harness it and access some truth, some aspect of humanity that we want to, we want to touch? So I'm going to use two works. Um, I'm going to use Rebecca Mackay's I Have Some Questions For You. Uh, very popular, recent novel. Many of you may have read it, seeing a few nods. Uh, the reason I'm using this novel is because um, I began to see it as I was preparing this talk as a meta-commentary on trope. Uh, she really dives into trope in a very meaningful way, and I think the point of the novel uh, is really to examine trope. So that's why I'm using this one. And then the second one I'm going to use is my novel, my new novel. It's called Fine Young People. Um, it's actually on submission with my publisher right now. And the reason I'm using it is because basically I'm intim intimately familiar with my own process, which you can never be with other writers. So I know sort of how I think when I find a cliche in my own work. And I want to kind of illustrate that um, through these remarks, and then we can see how that's maybe operating in other work that's not our own. Um, I'm going to talk for about 30 minutes, give or take, and then we'll turn it over to you guys for questions. All right. So before we talk about the opportunity, I want to read a quote from Brandon Taylor. This is from his Substack, which is excellent, very funny, and very good on craft. So. You can just Google Brandon Taylor Substack if you want to find it. Here's what he said about the campus novel. Any fiction that involves a person coming out of the broader society and entering into a social space that is not the domestic sphere but remains discreet from that broader society is a kind of campus fiction. A campus novel, by default, should offer us some insight into the conflicts and forces at work in the broader society. That is why one chooses a campus novel as a setting in the first place, because at the scale of the local, one has access to the concourses of the universal. I think this is a really beautiful idea. He has this sort of sense that everything is a campus novel. Uh, I'm actually using two campus novels today. Um, and But what he's tapping into here is the opportunity, right? The access to the concourses of the universal. I think that's what we're looking for as writers. And having the constraint of the campus, so in this case it's a setting, right? The constraint of setting, um, but also uh, the characters are somewhat constrained, right? Because you have students, you have teachers, you have maybe parents. Um, so you know, kind of constraint of the world of characters allows you some access to uh, humanity and society, right? Which is what we're all trying to do. So how does Mackay then play with this trope? Um, and I'm going to talk about genre and trope sort of interchangeably, genre being the bigger category where your book would fit into and trope being operating at the level of plot. So there's a lot of words on this slide. You don't have to read them all. But the idea here is that she's bombarding you with trope, right? So it's a mystery. It's a murder mystery. Uh, she's got an amateur sleuth. Like, there's no detective character, really. Um, it's dealing with this kind of very poppy true crime podcast idea that's playing right now um, in literature. 
It's a campus novel, takes place at a boarding school. And then she's got, within those genres, these primary tropes, uh, the main one being the young, beautiful dead girl, uh, the boyfriend-husband implication, whether or not you know, he did it. Uh, in this case, it's a boyfriend because it takes place in high school. Charismatic teacher, a sexual predator. Fallibility of memory, the murder mystery in this novel is uh, a couple decades in the past. And then she has a whole secondary line, which on my first read I thought was unnecessary to the novel, but when I started thinking about what she's doing with trope, I realized why it was in there. So the secondary plot, uh, the narrator has an ex-husband who gets caught up in a sort of post-Me Too cancel culture moment, so he gets canceled, and she comes to his defense. Um, very unrelated to the primary plot, but the tropes are related because the cancel culture is, and her defense of a man is commenting at, on the primary trope of young, beautiful, dead girl, um, the men who get away with it, um, the power dynamics between teacher, student, men and women. Um, so I believe that that second line is in there as part of this I mean, I'm not the author. It might be in there for other reasons. But as part of this um, discussion, right? So when you're sitting in a book club or you're, you're reading by yourself, you can think about these ideas on a, in a deeper way, right? As Brandon Taylor said, you can access the concourses of the universal. So I just want to read you how she starts the novel. So one thing I always do, even after I finish a book, is I go back to the beginning, and I just always read the first page. Um, I often read the last page of the book, too, before I read the whole book, because writers telegraph in that first page what's important, what you should be paying attention to. And then as a reader, I kind of forget. But then when you go back and look, you're like, oh, yeah, that's what this book was about. So this is how Mackay starts. You've, you, you've heard of her, I say, a challenge, an assurance. Wasn't it the one where she was stabbed in? No. The one where she got a cab with, different girl. The one where she went to the frat party, the one where he used a stick, the one where he used a hammer, the one where she picked him up from the rehab and he, no. The one where he'd been watching her jog every day, the one where she made the mistake of telling him her period was late, the one with the uncle, wait, the other one with the uncle, no. It was the one with the swimming pool. Okay, so right there, this is the prologue. This is even before chapter one. Uh, we know we're talking about all of these young, beautiful dead girls that, that are, you know, pop culture and media and society is kind of obsessed with, right? And she's going to, I think what she's telegraphing here is that we should question that. We should ask ourselves why. Why we care so much about these, um, you know, in some cases very gruesome murders or disappearances um, and you know what what we're doing with that um, curiosity so and then at the end of chapter one she comments on why so this is only a few pages later what could be more romantic what's as perfect as a girl stopped dead mid-formation girl as blank slate girl as reflection of your desires unmarred by her own Girl as sacrifice to the idea of girl. Girl is a series of childhood photographs, all marked with the aura of girl who will die young, as if the third grade portrait photographer should have seen it written on her face that this was a girl who would only ever be a girl. So 
it's, it's established here. This is the trope she's playing in, and we should care about it as readers. Certainly she cares about it as an author. Um, and it's, it's happening at sort of this meta level. Like, obviously, we're going to get a murder mystery, too. Like, a girl died in a swimming pool. We know that also from page one. Um, and that should hopefully propel the reader forward, just that straight mystery. But this is a literary novel, and she's doing something kind of more. She's going to tell us something about humanity, ideally. Or not tell us, right? Not be didactic about it, but um, make us think. That's the idea. So that's how trope is operating here. And I'm going to come back to this trope. This is the primary trope of the novel. Um, before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about cliché, um, and, then, and then we're going to kind of tie it all together. So the idea with cliché, you'll hear a lot of writers say, is to subvert it. Um, there, you don't necessarily have to subvert it. I think you can just... Um, sometimes dig into it, like go deeper on it. Um, you don't necessarily, like cliches are actually, there, there are a reason they're cliches. They're true, right? They're sort of adages in a way. Um, we live them, we recognize them. They're very relatable. Like my undergrad students would say, oh, that's so relatable. Undergrads love cliches. Um, and I think that, that because they're true and we recognize them and we relate to them, that makes them even more useful. And they tend to crop up in work in really important moments um, for that reason. Um, so, yeah, it's a verb cliche, but you don't necessarily have to undermine it. You can just kind of mine it or excavate it or consider what you want to say on a deeper level. So here's an example from my own work that, that I identified. Um, so... Uh, I was writing, I wanted to write the beginning of the novel, the first page, that, that very important thing that telegraphs to the reader, here's, here's something important, pay attention. And I was writing um, an account, a witness, a witness was watching a car go off a bridge. She's, she's witnessing a suicide. And um, the witness in my first draft, I described on the page as a dowdy woman, which is, it's not a cliche, but it's just a general generalization. It doesn't mean anything. It's not particularly memorable. It doesn't even really, um, like everyone kind of knows what a dowdy woman is, but it's not specific enough to be memorable because you there's so many different variations. For one thing, you can't really picture it. Um, and for this, this is my first page of my novel. Having such generic description was not serving it. It was not telegraphing to the reader, pay attention. This is important. So I revised it. The one image I could never get out of my head was a witness account of the car levitating, suspended between bridge and river, steel and water, civilization and abyss. The lady, middle-aged, with a coif of silver hair that called to mind Rod Blagojevich, post-commutation, held a miniature poodle in her arms as she spoke to the WTAE reporter. She said, I'm not a religious person, but... And it goes on. Um, and so now we see Rod Blagojevich's coif of silver hair. We see her holding her miniature poodle, right? She's not just, this takes place in Pittsburgh, she's not just a dowdy, middle-aged Pittsburgher. She's someone who is real and hopefully memorable enough for the reader to focus on that moment. Because that moment of the car levitating, um, which is in her mind, is important to the novel. It's important thematically. Um, so that's an example of general language. I'm going to give you an example of an actual cliche. 
this idea, his face lit up. So later in the novel, this is page 90 um, in my draft, I wanted to write a scene between two characters who had a very long and meaningful history. They've known each other since they were five years old. They met in kindergarten. Um, and they care about each other very deeply. And when one character saw the other, the first thing I wrote on my page was, his face lit up, and, which is an absolute cliche. We say that all the time when someone sees someone that they love. His face lit up, her face lit up, right? Um, and it's not, again, not memorable, doesn't mean much to the reader. We gloss over it because we've heard it so many times before. Most, more importantly, it doesn't reveal anything about character. Just because his face lit up, I don't know anything about their shared history um, because I've heard that said about so many people throughout my life so many times, right? So here's what I changed it to. When he saw her, his expression changed. When someone is happy to see another person, people always say, his face lit up, meaning it became animated in some way. But for Vince, when he saw Maddie, she recognized the inverse, a kind of relaxing of the muscles. So that's an inversion of the, that's a, you know, that's taking that cliche, his face lit up, and saying, okay, what do I really mean? Well, her mere presence relaxed him, right? His face didn't light up, it, it calmed down, right? Because she's known him when she was, since she was five, and, this, and he comforts, or she comforts him. Um, and so I think just, this is just a very simple thing. I mean, you just go in. Like, I've, I've heard writers say, I love it when I see cliches in my work because they're like little flags. And that's really what they are. They're flags. Like, what, what am I trying to say? What am I trying to reveal about character? You know, it's not that his face lit up. It's not that he was excited. It's that he was calmed, right? That's so much more meaningful. And it's just a little tweak. It's not even, I mean... It takes a long time to do this because, you know, you take a 400-page novel and you do this to every line and you're, you know, this is like years of revision. I'm not going to say this is easy. Um, writing novels is very hard. Writing stories is very hard. You know, whatever it is that you're writing. Um, but identifying the flags, I think, is actually the fun part. Um, and those, the, like I said earlier, I think they do tend to come up. These cliches tend to come up in very important moments. Uh, they're, they're cliches for a reason. Um, and in this case, the moment was just the, this, the, the, this relationship I wanted to illuminate for the reader. Um, but they could be important moments plot-wise as well. They could be important moments thematically. Uh, but when you see those flags, you, you have this opportunity, which is really, really useful. Okay, so beyond... So, so now we've talked about kind of you know, playing with trope as a, as a constraint and an opportunity, right? Trope as, as a, an opportunity to explore, as Brandon Taylor said, the concourses of the universal, and then identifying cliches and using them as an opportunity to really dig into what we really want to say. And then here's the meat of what I think is, is the real challenge and exciting part of, of trope and cliche. Actually, before I get to that, I want to talk about a little bit of this... Iterating with detail. So, um, George Saunders, who I love, 
many of you probably have heard of George Saunders, um, has a book called A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. Highly recommended as a craft book. Really, really good. He also, if you don't want to read the book, um, does a lot just of speaking with the media about craft. Um, he has, I think he has a podcast, which I have not listened to. He has a newsletter. Um, so you can get a lot of just free craft lessons from George Saunders. Uh, but he has this idea with writing and revision that... Um, you know, revision is like sitting in the chair at the optometrist's office where they're putting lenses in front of your eyes and they're saying, is it this one or is it this one? Is this one clear or is this one clear? And on and on and on, right? Honing in on the, the thing that you want to say, right? Um, and I think that's a really, really beautiful metaphor for what we're doing as writers. Um, and he gives this example of it. Bob was an asshole. So this is kind of like the dowdy woman, right? Doesn't really mean anything. It's not a cliche. It's just a generalization, an abstraction. Well, what does it mean for Bob to be an asshole? It means nothing to the reader. They don't know anything about him at that point. But let's say that's the first thing you wrote on your page. Um, so he says, you know, put that lens, that optometrist lens in front of that. Kind of ask why. Dig into it. Well, what did he do that made him an asshole? Bob snapped impatiently at the young barista. And he says, George Saunders says, okay, well, now I know that I can see him. I can actually see him in scene being an asshole. Um, but I still don't really know why. It's, it's not memorable. It's not particularly emotional. Um, so who reminded him of his dead wife, who he missed so much, especially now at Christmas? So as this sentence goes on, you know, we're putting a lens after a lens after a lens, and we're getting to the real meaning of it. I mean, I think what when we when we get to his dead wife, we kind of feel it emotionally. Uh, when we get to the fact that it's Christmas time, you feel it kind of from a, a the, it's like ethos, right? The values of it. We all know what it's like to miss someone at Christmas. So the reader then now understands Bob, right? So much better once you put those, the, the lenses, the optometrist lenses of revision on it. So that's what we're doing um, with these generalizations and and with trope as well, as we dig into trope. All right, so the motif. So this is your, this is like what I want to leave you with. Um, I only get a half hour with you and, and Q&A, um, but I really think that, especially if you're writing longer work, if you can use motif to, as a tool, um, that'd be something you want to pay attention to. Um, it, it's true in stories as well, if you're writing shorter work, but um, stories don't need it as much because they're short. Um, but let me give you an example first from Akai and then my own novel of what I mean by this. And, and note that this comes from trope and cliche. So as you recall from when I read from Akai's book at the beginning of the talk, um, we're talking about these young, beautiful, dead girl trope, right? And she's going to thread that throughout the entire novel. She constantly kind of touches back to the idea of the young, beautiful, dead girl. And then it reaches something of a crescendo in the, towards the end, and she's going to illuminate it to make meaning for the reader. So I'm going to read you a little more. Uh, this is from chapter 30, so page 411. We're very deep into the novel at this point. It was the one where she used her umbrella as a shield. You remember, right? Nancy Grace covered the trial. Let's skip down a little bit. 
Um, this was the one where people had a hard time taking her seriously because her name was a stripper name. Jay Leno made jokes about her, about her name. This was the same year Lorena Bobbitt cut off her husband's penis. It was right, af it was right after sophomore year at Granby. Leno made a joke about both this woman and Lorena Bobbitt, something about their names, something about knives. She survived the stabbing. She was the one who went on Oprah with scars on her neck, scars on her face. She was the one who sat down with Barbara Walters. Barbara leaned in close and asked if she had it in her to forgive of her attacker. He had just been released from his two-year prison sentence. Here's what I remember. This woman, still so young, looked back at Barbara Walters and said, am I supposed to? I guess that's what you're supposed to do. That's how you move on. It didn't stand out to me at the time. This seemed the kind of thing people said, but 10 years later, I woke in the middle of the night suddenly remembering that interview, wanting to scream. I googled the woman to see if she'd changed her mind, if she'd spoken out again. She'd died six years earlier, shot by a different man, one she'd forgiven again and again, just like she was supposed to. So here we get a deepening of the trope, right? Now we're talking about the media's attention on these women. Um, in some cases, the media's dismissal of them. Uh, Jay, Jay Leno making jokes. We get a little of uh, context of the time. So she's talking about a pre-Me Too era where, it was, where this murder took, took place, but it was okay at that point, right, to, to make fun of these women. Um, it's a little bit less okay now, but we're still... There's still work to be done, and she's going she's gonna to get to that point. Um, so then, this is chapter 37, so a few pages later. There was a man who got off the hook because he'd married the only witness very quickly. She couldn't be forced to testify against her husband. She was the victim's mother. There was the man who got away with it because the defense made the girl's best friend, now 13, testify that the dead girl had sneaked into R-rated movies. This apparently meant she was mature enough, sexually active, they said, at 12, that anyone could have killed her, not just the bus driver who had the nude photos. And she goes on, there was a man, there was a man, there was a man. So we get, um, we get... The, the additional color of what's happening on the other side, and I think this is also playing with that secondary trope of the, um, the post-Me Too cancellation of her ex-husband, right? So we've got the cancel culture trope of how society is now treating men who are, you know, perpetrators or accused in some way, um, and she's deepening the... Um, the commentary on, you know, well, what's, it's just shades of gray, right? Um, there's no answers in literary fiction, but she's saying, okay, like, let's then also pay attention to, to the men. Um, and then finally, she leaves us with, I think, the most philosophical of, of her dealing with, with this trope um, on chapter 40. So this is right near the very end. That was her flip-flop beside the van. That was her comb in the ravine. That was her bank card at the ATM in Kansas. But that wasn't her on the security footage. Some leave more than others, to be sure. Some leave trails and videos and yearbook quotes. Some leave barely a trace. That was her handwriting in the logbook. That was her phone tossed off the overpass. That was her blood in the bathroom. That was her hair in the attic. We're lucky to find this much. That was her laundry still in the dryer. This was her body, but she's long gone. Um, so... Now we get to sort of what we're left with, what, what's left behind with these, these young, beautiful dead girls. Um, I mean, my reading of this is, 
you know, we've, we've made progress in our post-Me Too era, but um, we, we are still not serving, our, our sort of attention on these girls is not serving us as a society, as human beings. It's certainly not serving the girls who are often not getting justice, um, definitely not serving the wrongfully accused, another kind of trope that's in here. Um, you know, so again, literary fiction, no answers here, but definitely a, an examination of that trope. Um, I'll give you an example now from Fine Young People, my novel, uh, how this can come out of not trope, but cliche. So one second, maybe more. So the cliche that this started with in my writing was time stood still. And we've all probably said that before, heard it a million times. A big moment, time stands still. And when I saw that on the page, I thought, what does that even mean, that time, time stands still? I mean, certainly we're not meaning it literally, right? Or maybe we are, actually, right? Maybe time really does stand still. Maybe something deeply uh, philosophical is happening when we, when we say that cliche about, about something. And so, back to the woman with the, the hair that looked like Rod Bogoyevich um, and her account of the car that opened the novel. According to the woman, the car's velocity slowed, then it stopped, suspended in air. She blinked and it hit the water. It was only one second, maybe more, she said. It would have been easy to dismiss her observation as magical thinking, except she went on, I got the distinct feeling that I was watching an event unfold as if it had already happened and would happen again, like it was somehow overlapping. Okay, so this is the first two pages of the novel. We get this witness account. And, and when I saw that, when I identified that cliche and I thought about that, that one second, maybe more, and I kind of in my head as a writer zeroed in on the maybe more, like what is happening in that maybe more, um, I decided I wanted to make that a motif of the novel. I wanted it to come back again. So I hit on it, um, just, this is page 12, so this is literally just eight pages later. I wanted to hit on the motif. Uh, so the narrator of the novel is now sitting in her school assembly. Uh, this, is, this takes place in high school. Um, thinking about the student who had just died. They're, they're being told in assembly, or they were told in assembly, but she's thinking about it. Light streamed in through the east windows. The curtains were never drawn because we were accustomed to the gloom of western Pennsylvania. But the day after we found out Kyle died, the, the sun shone brilliantly. It hit my face, causing my eyes to pinch shut. On the backs of my eyelids, I saw the white Tesla levitating. One second, maybe more, then it was gone. All right, so that's just to establish this really as a motif. Um, then later, this is page 27, um, this is an important moment for the narrator, again, keying in on these important moments where you want the reader to pay attention. She decides that she wants to investigate um, an 18-year-old murder for reasons I don't need to go into. Intuitively, I understood something I was not able to articulate it articulate yet. I needed to see Wolf, not as a hockey player, not as a dead body in the chapel, and not as a victim, but as a human being, a person who loved and was loved, who dreamed and was dreamed about, a person who, with a past, brief as it was, a present, and a future cut short, a person whose story overlapped with my own, both in ways I would soon uncover and in ways I would never understand because they are the great mystery, infinite, infinitely complex and mind-blowingly simple, the way time can stand still for one second, maybe more. So there's that, that cliche, right? Um, 
but again, as a motif, it means something more than just a cliche. Um, here's page 196, so now we're about halfway into the novel. Um, this is the most important moment. I think this is a turning point for the narrator. She finds out something about, um, I won't spoil it, but she finds out something that is very fundamental to her as an individual. She says, even now, after thinking about what happened next for some time, it is difficult to describe. It happened in that one second, maybe more, enough time to perceive a car levitating. So this is 200 pages in, but readers, of course, remember this, right? Or that's the delight for the reader, because they've heard that before, the one second, maybe more, right? And that repetition, I think, hopefully works. Um, and then... It's going to crescendo at the end of the novel. So this is page 375, the very end. So hopefully as a writer, by the end of the story or the novel, you've earned the right to be philosophical. I don't think writers necessarily have that right at the beginning, but you know, if you sustain a reader for 375 pages, you can maybe say what you want to say. Uh, the, the, the narrator at this point, the point of narration is in college, uh, studying religion. Are you studying any religion in particular, Vince asked. I think about some of the classes I've been taking, Islam in the West, the English Reformation, Zen Buddhism, Dante's Divine Comedy. They all interest me, but none as much as what William James called the overlapping things, the things in the universe that throw the last stone, so to speak, and say the final word. I picture the blank wall above my bed in the dorm. That wall contains multitudes, the absent crucifix, my mom's devotion, Shiv's Arangathram, the puja room in her house, her dad elsewhere chanting Hare Krishna, what Maddie called the absence, mass at St. Mary's, Kyle's funeral, a mother's grief, a mother's grief, a mother's grief. There is that one second, maybe more, when a car levitated between bridge and water. Do I believe Kyle's car defied the laws of physics? Of course not. But for the witness, that moment was expansive, infinite even, like Dante's white light or what Albie Harris saw when he died on the ice before being brought back to life. Who could say what occupies one second, maybe more? The Holy Spirit, Krishna, L. Ron Hubbard's Thayden, who knows? It is the state of eternal present that Father Michael talked about in his benediction. It is the opposite of achievement. It is all those overlapping things pushed aside and forgotten in an onslaught of bridge alerts and Instagram reels. Okay, so that's basically her uh, spiritual awakening. Uh, I didn't spoil the novel, but that is mo I think that is how we can take a cliché Time stood still, which means nothing because it's said so much, and then make it the maybe the predominant um, reason for the novel. In my case, I think reason for the novel's existence. Um, very, very powerful tool um, that that any writer, I guess, I hope can can kind of take with them and think about, um, examine those tropes, um, find those cliches, and then and then use them, right? What do you want to say, uh, as Brandon Taylor suggested, to um, explore the concourses of the universal? Uh, that's our opportunity with trope and cliche. Okay, so with that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pause, and then uh, uh, Mason will go around, and if you have a question, I'll, I'll be happy to answer it. Thank you so much for the lecture. Um, I wanted to hear your thoughts on how you think about pacing, because if you're doing a cliche in some 
cases that can be a shorthand. That can be just this is really quick, the reader knows, and we're going to move on. And then if you dive deeper, it kind of takes more time. It slows your story down. I'd love to hear kind of how you know when you should sort of just like take the shorthand and go and when it's worth investing in because I feel like I kind of veer yeah. back and forth. Great question. Um, I think that, or at least the way I work in revision is uh, I try to key in on those very important moments. So you might have like, like with the example of his face lit up, it might be the case that if, if that's not really um, important characters or an important moment between two characters, it might be fine to just say his face lit up. Um, the reader may not need more than that, and they just get it that, that he's excited to see his friend and move on, um, and that's totally fine if that's um, if you want the reader to move on. Um, but if you really like, so if you're this is all happening in revision too, so you've already written uh, what you want to write, um, and you have to ask yourself, well, do I want the reader to know more? Um, and yeah, it might slow the reader down, but I think. I mean, at I, I don't think the reader will mind if it's actually important, an important moment in the, in the short story or the novel, um, and if these characters are important to the reader, I think the reader will want to know more in that sense. So, I mean, to answer your question, I think it's sort of, like, like anything with revision, you want to focus on those important moments and those important relationships between characters, and then you can let some sort of generic language and cliche, you can just let it be um, in other places where you want to just keep moving. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I was struck when you were reading uh, Rebecca Mackay, um, this whole, this was a girl, this was a girl, the repetitiveness of that, and I saw how effective that was. I'm just wondering, um, when you use this kind of an and syntax, how do we stay away from the risk of making that itself a cliche across the course of a novel, so that it doesn't just become like a throwaway phrase by the time you've, you sort of finish? Yeah. Uh, so are you referring specifically to the repetition or the, um, just the, the syntax? Is it or both? Uh, I guess both. I mean, well, not not thematically, but more in terms of just the the way she's phrased it and how that anaphora keeps repeating. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's a tough question. I mean, I think. Well, for one thing, I think a lot of people would read that and not like it. So you have to take that risk, right? So you are risking alienating certain readers. Um, when, you use, when you use repetition um, or when you use sort of, there's sort of a simplicity to that syntax, there is a, there is a, and, and the repetition kind of makes it more interesting because you know it's intentional, right? That, that syntax is intentional. Um, I think, um, you know, readers would definitely not like it if they think it's, it's just lazy writing. So with, in, in the case of Mackay, we don't really see it as lazy, especially because we're getting it again and again. Um, readers definitely would not want the lazy writing. But I do think that you're right. It's a risk because readers might just be like, well, this is sort of silly or I don't need this. Um, and, you know, as a, as a writer, like when, you, when you, if you, if anyone ever publishes or even if you just show it to your friends, um, you know, 
people are quite nasty on Goodreads, and they will say, like, that, that is stupid. I don't like that. And the writer just has to be like, well, maybe you didn't get it, or it's not for you, it's not for everyone. Like, you know, I mean, these are choices that are, I think, hard choices, but the writer just has to trust like, okay, this is what I want to do, and I'm going to take the license, the creative license to do that. Um, and I, I personally love, I mean, repetition, I think, used well is such an effective tool uh, because, again, it's that telegraphing to the reader, pay attention to this. Um, so I, I think, yeah, some readers won't like it, but the ones that do will really get it. Thank you. As I listen to you, I kept thinking about the idea of a violation of expectation. And there's a tension between the reader and the author. So you set it up like a volleyball spot, um, set up, and then you don't you either deliberately, uh, you don't. And I love that. I love that when yes. it happens. Yes, so, yes, that's a comment. I mean, I don't really need to say more. It's the same way jokes work, right? You set up a joke, the audience is expecting something, and then the punchline is something else, and that's why it's funny. Um, so that, that's the same thing that's going on, and it's, it's very effective. Thank you very much for your talk. Yeah. I'm going to ask what everybody, I think, is thinking, and I'm sure you have an answer for it, but... How does the effort, how does the existence of popular works that are full of cliché and yet capture millions of readers exist in the same sphere as this and, and your efforts to write in a more literary, uh, original mind-bending way? Yes, that's a great question. I've thought about that a lot. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, cliche sells, clearly. Trope sells. People love books that, you know, they've sort of read before, and, and TV shows as well. Um, and so I guess, yeah, I'm not saying that, I definitely don't think that it's bad. Like if you if you want to be a commercial writer or you just want to please your you know your grandma or someone that, that like loves romance novels, right? Um, you know, writers I don't think should all aspire to be literary. Um, certainly, it, literary, especially if you want to make money, right? Liter writing literary novels is probably not the best idea. Um, for me personally, I think I can't help myself because like the reason I'm writing is to explore as Brandon Taylor said the concourses of the universal like I feel this like urge and need to to write about being a human being um that that it's just it's like kind of hardwired into me it's in all the books that I love um and it's not particularly profitable. Um, you know, I should have just, uh, frankly, just stayed in business and not been a writer at all. But, like, um, it, it is deeply satisfying. Um, and, you know, like, writing this novel for me, my second novel, uh, which I hope, man, I hope it gets published, it, it, was, it was an exploration of, uh, for me, these deep 
truths, religious truths, philosophical truths that, like, I really, as a human being, wanted to explore. And, yeah, I mean, not every writer is going to want to do that, and not every reader is going to want to read it. A lot of people just want, you know, a romantic comedy, or they want a murder, they want a straight murder mystery that's not, like, bogged down in, like, this meta-analysis of what's going on. Um, and I think that's totally fine and great, and, like, I, I, I applaud that, because those are the writers that are probably making a lot of money. Um, you know, it's hard, and maybe it's hard to separate yourself from the fray sometimes when you're, when you're, dealing a lot in cliche because a lot of people are like and we I was at a book club the other night and we were talking Colleen Hoover came up right and we were talking about her success um and you know a lot of people obviously love I mean that she has this massive following she's taken over all the bestseller lists um and she's playing with trope and cliche I mean I've actually never read a Colleen Hoover book but um you know I guess I'm not. I'm not saying don't do that. Like, like I think this particular lecture is about an opportunity to be more literary. I think with it, but if if that's not your thing, then don't bother. You know, you might as well just have fun, right? Because that's what I mean. Writing is also just meant to be entertaining. Um, so, and and you know. As my undergrads say, like they want it to be relatable, and sometimes those relatable stories are kind of the the ones we've heard before, the cliches, and and they're just fun. Great question. Hi, thank you for that lecture. Really appreciate it. Um, <clears throat> I'm really new to writing, so um, I wrote this uh, novel that I did in first person. And I haven't put dialogue in it necessarily because it's kind of a secret until you hit the middle of the book and then you kind of figure out why I can't, I can't explore and, and talk about it. Um, do you see those as, uh, should I be throwing um, dialogue in to, just, to me it's like I'm throwing stuff in that I don't necessarily want. I want to get your opinion on that. So, that, but you said there's a reason that dialogue doesn't appear in the first half? Yep. yep. I mean, I think if there's a reason then you should go with it. I mean, it could be deeply satisfying when that reason is revealed, right? Um, so writers are always playing with that. That's another sort of kind of constraint as an opportunity, right? So, um, you know, like I, in my novel, I have this big reveal that happens on about midway through the novel, page 200 or so. Um, and like, I hope, my hope is that if the reader gets there, it'll just you know, you want to kind of blow their mind, right? They're like, oh, I get it. I get why this was withheld from me. Um, you know, the risk, I guess, is that the reader won't get there. Um, and if a reader... So I guess th there's no answer other than someone would have to read it and then say if it worked or not, right? Um, or you would have to read it. Uh, ideally, someone else, though, because you already know the reveal. Um, so someone who doesn't know would have to read it and say, yeah, I was sustained until I found out what the author was doing, and that was deeply satisfying. You want that other feedback, I think, from someone who doesn't know your work. This is a later question, and uh, good job navigating that question before this one. Um, Rod Bulagoyevich. How many Gen Zers know what he looks like? And is your narrator from Illinois? Is that why? Well, no, I actually know? thought about that. It's funny that you mentioned that. Um, so I really wanted that um, visual because I liked it. And I, 
so I actually was sort of, I needed to be deeply aware of the Rod Blagojevich timeline. So Trump commuted his sentence. So he, he came out of prison in 2020. So he was in the public eye briefly. I mean, not sustained. And maybe, maybe Gen Zers don't pay attention to that kind of news. But he was on the news in 2020 when, he, when his sentence was com- commuted. So I think, um, you know, had that not happened, then, yeah, it would have been a little misplaced because, you know, here are people in the, in the 2020s like, who definitely wouldn't be aware of that in the way that I was aware of it when it was all going on. Um, he was an apprentice. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, you know, I guess I took a little license there, but I think that's a really funny and good point that, like, you have to be thinking about that, and that's, that's part of the why, actually, um, I put that post-commutation in there. Because if someone was paying attention, you know, I wanted to sort of say, like, okay, this is not him back then when I knew him. This is him with his silver hair, right, which has changed um, after he got out of prison. So I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, you always take these little creative licenses. And, yeah, maybe uh, there's a lot of things where I, I kind of second guess, like, would a young person... Uh, be paying attention to that and in some cases the answer is well maybe not but I still want to do it I don't know I hear you 